right. Good morning, you guys. Good to see you today. Uh, thank you, Josue, and the music team for that. That was amazing. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, let's open those up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, that's where we're going to be at uh, here this morning. Uh, last week, we began this short kind of three-week series looking at three different texts and just wanting to make sure that as we begin this new season, this new era, maybe you want to think of it that way, as a church, as we move into the future following Jesus together, that we really get on the same page and get off on the right foot. And so last week we looked at the role of Jesus and, and what role he plays in our lives and how he's not a means to an end, but he is our great end. He's the one that we want. He's the one we pursue. Uh, next week we're going we're to look at success and how God defines success. That's really important. Uh, but today we're going to look at what the Bible says is actually the most important thing, what the most important thing is in our lives and as a church. Um, I, I was thinking back years ago. Uh, when we and my family were living in Corvallis, Oregon, home of uh, Oregon State University, go Beavs, um, and uh, we had bought our first home, and we had just had our second child, and we were quickly growing out of that house, and so we began to look around for a new house to move into. And I was a church planner at the time, so we were on a church planner's salary, which means our budget was pretty small, and we kept looking at different homes and just weren't really finding anything. And all of a sudden, this, this home came up for sale in this part of town that was like this amazing part of town, really close to the university. And, and so we went and checked it out. And we were like, how in the world is this house like in our price range? It didn't make sense. And we're touring the house with our realtor. And, and it's like big. It's huge. It's old, which me and my wife, Elizabeth, we, we love kind of old homes and the character of old homes. And so we're like getting to the end of our tour. And we're just like, man, this is like too good to be true. You know, how is this house affordable for us? And our realtor finally was like, well, I don't know if it really is because it needs a new foundation. And uh, so that's going to be about one to $200,000. And so quickly the air kind of left us, you know. But then I was thinking, and I was like, man, it's like perfect. It's the right neighborhood. It's the right area. I could just walk to campus. Like, you know, I was just going through all the things. It was perfect. And so in my stupidity, internally, I'm beginning to go, it's just a foundation. You know, like it's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, how important really is a foundation? And could you imagine if they would even have given us a loan to buy the house and we never fixed the foundation, right? Our, our life might have felt great for a while, but eventually our whole world would fall apart, right? A foundation is important even if it's easily overlooked uh, in our lives. Um, I think that's very true for the most important things. Sometimes the things that are the most important can become easily overlooked, whether it's in our own lives or as a church. And I'm actually kind of curious if you would kind of, kind of let this question marinate in your mind. You know, what is the most important thing in my life? What is it that if that thing were lost or slipped through my hands, my whole world would come crashing down? And what about as a church? What is the most important thing for us as a church? That if we lost it, no matter all the good other things that we do and see, our, our church would just begin to collapse in and on itself. What is that thing for us? Because we can, we can have it all. Like we could do a bunch of things, but if we miss the main thing, the thing of first importance, it's not going to go good for us. The good news is that answer is not left to kind of our subjective opinions, I guess, as Christians. We are told this morning that the most important thing in your life, in the Christian life, and the most important thing as a church, 
is the gospel. And it's something that we should never move beyond and that we build our lives upon. So we're going to look at a few different things in this text. We're going to look at who the gospel is for. Who's the gospel for? And this text answers that question. We're going to look at what the gospel is, because it's defined, but not only is it defined, it is proclaimed as true. It's true. And then lastly, we're going to see what the gospel does, what the gospel does. Uh, so let's look at who, who the gospel is for, who the gospel is for. Verses 1 through 2, what does it say? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Um, I, I have a terrible memory. Um, if if uh, my wife Elizabeth and I talk about something in the past and we remember it differently, I'm painfully and slow, slowly uh, learning to embrace the fact that I'm wrong uh, and that I just remember it wrong and I'm not doing the husband. That's just true. I have a terrible memory. I never remember things accurately. And uh, you probably have a way better memory than me. That wouldn't be hard to accomplish. Uh, but here, our text is actually saying that all of us, all human beings, even Christians, we have a bad memory problem when it comes to the gospel. Because Paul's writing to people who already have believed the gospel. He's saying that, and he says, I want to remind you, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters of the gospel, we need to be reminded of the gospel. In other words, it's never something that we move beyond. Because maybe these people who are listening to this, they had forgotten it, and so they need to be reminded. But maybe they hadn't forgotten it, but they need to be reminded so that they don't forget it. Right? So notice how Paul is showing you how we never move beyond it, because what does he say? You've received the gospel. There was something that was a decided moment in your past where you received it, you believed it. And fundamentally, this is what it means to be a Christian. We are people who've received something, we haven't achieved something. We are receivers, we are not achievers. That's what it means to be a Christian. But Paul then says, you not only received it as if it's only a past tense thing, so you don't just go from junior varsity and now you're varsity, right? You've moved beyond it and leave the gospel behind. No, as he say, you currently stand in it. Do you see that there? In other words, it's, it's not the, the doorway into the house of Christianity. Like the house is the gospel itself, right? It is the door and the house. To put it another way, the gospel is not the ticket into Disneyland. It's Disneyland, Right? This is what he's saying. It's the ground beneath your feet. Right? You, you've entered into this relationship with God through the gospel, and now you stand on this ground. But then Paul says, by it you are being saved. By it you are being saved. So don't think that, yes, you're like, yeah, I definitely need the gospel today, but someday I hope I don't really need it anymore. This is saying that you will always need it. Because right? by it you are being saved. Therefore, my only hope of ever being changed is not anything in me. It's not me having a great plan and then executing that plan with my, my white-knuckle gripping of that plan and putting all my strength into it until I become this, like, changed person. No, my change happens as I actually then open my hands and let go and begin to receive God's grace. 
right? So everybody needs the gospel, right? This is what Paul is saying. Who needs the gospel? Who is it for? Everybody. But as Christians, we then say, especially me, right? Everybody needs the gospel, especially me. But before we go further, I think it's really important to think about what this word gospel is, right? What is the word gospel? What, it, what is that? Well, it's a word that means good news. I mean, maybe you're somebody, you don't use the word gospel every day. You're not hanging out with your friends and family and just rattling off the word gospel all the time. So you could just think, every time you hear the word gospel, just think good news. You know what that is, right? You know what good news is. And it actually wasn't originally a Christian word. It was a word that was most generally used in battle. So if, if one nation was in in war with another nation, and that nation defeated another nation, the victorious nation would send out messengers to the surrounding villages, and they would have gospel. They'd have good news. They would go throughout the streets and proclaim. They would say, the war is over. The, the, The war has been won, right? Your king is victorious. We have defeated our enemies, right? It was an announcement. So this is, this is really important to realize, because we, we then know that the gospel is not advice. It's never telling you to do something. The gospel is, is an announcement. Right? It's not an advice, it's an announcement. It's, it's telling you something that's happened. You decidedly then receive the news, or you can reject it if you want, but you receive the news, and when you receive that news, you experience the benefits of it. Right? So if you were at war, and someone came through your village and said, the, the battle is over, the war is won, you go, oh my gosh, we can enjoy now the peace and the joy that comes from that announcement, right? This is, what it would, this is what it would look like to receive that news, and we would know when we receive it that somebody else accomplished it, not us. See, this is precisely why Christianity is extremely different than every other belief system in the world. Because every other belief system in the world is telling you what you need to do in order to be accepted by God. Even a secular belief system that doesn't have any belief in God, they're consistently telling you what you need to do in order to be accepted by society or other people. Right? You gotta do certain things and then you'll be accepted. The gospel is announcing to you, it's news saying what God has done so that you could forever be accepted by Him. He's done it. But you see, this only sounds like good news if you know that you've been in a war. Right? If you know you're in a battle and you hear this, that's only the only time it sounds like good news. I mean, could you imagine today if we lived in a place that was at war and you didn't even know it? Right? And so I, I get up here and I was like, hey guys, I thought it'd be fitting before we preach today. I just had an announcement to tell you. Um, I got word today that we defeated our greatest enemy, Australia. You know? And I was like, but hey, we're good now, right? I just wanted you to know so we can worship in peace today. You know, you'd be like, oh, okay, uh, all right. I guess I'm, I'm glad we won. I didn't know we, there was some conflict. Is everybody okay? Like, did anybody die? You know, I, I kind of like Australia. The pictures look beautiful. I've never been there. Um, but I met an Australian once and I liked the accent, you know. So, you know, what, you know what's, what are you experiencing in that moment? You're, you're confused, right? That announcement is falling on a confused heart. Could you imagine someone announcing to you, Christ has died and paid for your sins and he's defeated death and sin so that you could be reconciled to God and and, and you didn't even know that you had this problem? What's your response going to be? 
oh, okay, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I thought me and God were cool. You know, you would just have this confused response. So the, so the gospel is only good news if you know that you've been in a war. Right? If you know that you're in a war and your greatest enemy is not another person, it's not another nation, but, it, but it's your own sinful heart against a God who made you. And yet throughout your life, you're consistently just evaluating what he has in terms of guidance for your life based upon whether or not you want to do it or not. And so we throw off his rule all the time because we want to just do our own thing. But even in the face of that, maybe you've come to a place where you're like, you know what, like I I just want to be free from this sin. I hate this sin, but you just can never seem to get free from it. But someone comes to you and announces to you Your sin has been paid for. You can experience new life with God because Jesus lived a perfect life so he could be the perfect sacrifice. And he died, like he really died. But then he got up from death and walked out of the grave three days later. And as he did so, he announces that his work is finished. And that you could have this new reconciled relationship to God. If that has been your problem and you know that's been your battle, then that is good news. That is tremendous, tremendous news. In the day of that being fully realized, we know it isn't here yet, which is why Paul says what? Hold fast to it. Hold fast to this message. Everybody needs the gospel, especially me. Well, what the gospel, what is it? Verses three through eight kind of lay this out for us. We've already read through verse five. Uh, Look what it says in verse six and following. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You can see there, right, at the beginning of verse 3, Paul did not make this message up, right? He wasn't just trying to concoct his own religious system. He thought this was a good idea and tried to get a bunch of people on board with him. What does he say? He says, I just received something and I've delivered it to you. I'm just the mailman, right? I'm not making this stuff up. I've received it and I've delivered a message. What's the message? Well, here we have one of the clearest places in all the New Testament of what the gospel is. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, right? That He was dead. And He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, Paul gets all historical on us. He wants us to know and he wants us to remember that this thing, this earth-shattering event, it's not a myth. It's not just a good bedtime story. This thing really happened, you guys. I don't know, some of you heard my testimony when I visited, I think in May, so I hope all of you can hear it someday. Um, Not because it's amazing, but just so you get to know me a little better, I guess. Um, But when I was in high school, uh, me and my friends loved the band Nirvana, okay? We loved this band Nirvana. And I don't know if you know who Nirvana is. They were this grunge band in the 90s. Um, you could kind of imagine who I was, what I was like in the 90s, you know, since they were my favorite band. Um, but Kurt Cobain, the famous lead singer, he tragically died like 30 years ago. And me and my friends, we'd be hanging out, and, and every once in a while, you know, one of my friends, um, I, don't, I, was hope, I hope he was joking, but he might have been serious. You know, we talk about, man, I can't believe Cobain is dead. You know, there's no more Nirvana songs. And he would say, no, man, Cobain lives. 
Cobain lives. And we'd all be like, yeah, Cobain lives. You know, Cobain lives, lives on. And what were we not saying in that moment? We weren't saying, no, Cobain's been resurrected and he's still making music and living in Seattle. That's not what we were thinking. No, we were just saying he lives on, his spirit lives on in his fans, right? See, Paul is not saying Jesus lives, like he lives on in the spirit of his fans. No, he like really lives, right? And he wants you to know that, right? We get details. We are told Jesus' corpse was laid in a grave with no pulse, no breath. He just laid there for three days and then he came back to life by the power of God. And he wants you to know this is not philosophy, it's history. So Paul, I love this, he's a really good Westerner because he presents two pieces of evidence for us. He goes, here, here's some two pieces of evidence. Exhibit A, here's these eyewitness accounts. Look at these eyewitness accounts in verses five through eight. He names all these people. And he points out that so many of these people are still alive. Why? So he's like, you can go talk to them. You can go talk to these people. As, as Californians and, and Westerners, we're, we're naturally skeptical people. And so sometimes you could think about eyewitness accounts and go, oh man, I don't know, maybe these people were lying, right? Maybe they all hallucinated. You know, maybe they just made all this stuff up after, you know, Jesus was gone. You know, people just wanted to like build this account, this new religion. Well, let's just quickly address some of those things. I mean, you might say, well, sure, there's these eyewitnesses, but they were lying. Well, guys, think about, just think about that. The problem with that pushback is that if these people were lying, think about how they lived their lives. These people were like the scum of the earth. They were despised. They were persecuted. Most of them died for this lie, if that's what you think it is. Right? Even if you think they, people die for a lie, realize people don't die for a lie that they know is a lie. Right? Uh, Chuck Colson uh, talked about this. Famously, he said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, right? It's extremely challenging to believe that all these people were crafting a lie while their lives are being ruined for the lie. You go, okay, well, maybe they weren't lying. Maybe they were just confused. You know, they, they all just hallucinated at one point and they saw some guy in a toga and, you know, they're like, that's Jesus. He's alive, you know? Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, do you see verse six? What does it say? He refers to 500 people who saw him at once. 500 people do not hallucinate at once. You might say, I remember Woodstock 69. I think they do. And I would say, hey, if everybody's hallucinating once, you don't all see the same thing though, do you? The same exact hallucination? This doesn't happen, right, people? You go, okay, maybe they weren't lying. Maybe there wasn't some hallucination. It's just these supernatural claims about Jesus that were just added in later. Right? The, the real Jesus was some kind of left-leaning do-gooder who wore Birkenstocks and Patagonia gear and 
just listen to James Taylor and, you know, that kind of thing. And later on, everybody came along and really added all these things to Jesus, the Son of Godness, and him having this authority so that they could use their authority, you know, over a new society. No, this is among the earliest Christian writings. This letter is dated like A.D. 50. And, and one of the letters that nobody debates was authored by Paul. And so Paul is saying that at the time of this writing, there are more than 500 people that you can go and talk to. Right? That's not the kind of thing that you say if it's not true. So to say that the apostles lied or they were mistaken or that the stuff was added in later, it's just not compelling. And Paul is going around saying, if you have doubts, go talk to these people. Guys, something happened. Something happened. So that's the first piece of evidence. Then he brings in exhibit B. Do you see it? It's fulfilled prophecy. Look at verses 3 through 4. Do you see that same phrase coming up again in verses 3 and 4? He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and raised in accordance with the Scriptures. The apostles were even saying, don't take our word for it, just read the Old Testament. But do you realize that there are more than 300 references to 61 specific prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament? More than 300 references to 61 specific prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled them. Uh, There was a professor of mathematics named Peter Stoner, and he gave 600 students a math probability problem that would determine the odds of one person just fulfilling eight of those prophecies. Not 61, just eight. Right? So they took a passage, for example, of how the Old Testament said the Messiah would be betrayed by one of his friends for 30 pieces of silver. And they figured out what's the probability of that even happening. And they did it for a total of eight. And, and this is what they can came up with. They said the odds of one person fulfilling just eight prophecies, it's astronomical. Okay, now, I'm not good at math, okay, full disclosure here. So, um, but they said the, the probability of that would be one in 10 to the 21st power. If you know math, you're like, wow. And 90% of us are like, what does that even mean, right? So he wanted to illustrate it, right, for 90% of us. And he said, just imagine this. This is the probability of that happening. He says, I want you to cover the earth with silver dollars 120 feet deep. The entire earth with silver dollars 120 feet deep. Next, I want you to mark one of those silver dollars and bury it somewhere. Finally, have one person just walk around the earth blindfolded and then reach down and grab a silver dollar. The odds of him grabbing the one that's marked is the same odds as one person fulfilling eight specific prophecies, not 61, right? Guys, people can do shady things with numbers. We all know that. Uh, But it's important to note that the American Scientific Association said, quote, the mathematical analysis is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound, and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. This leads somebody like Wolfhart Pannenberg to say the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's very unusual, right? Second, if you believed it happened, you'd have to change the way you live. Most of us are just in the second part. 
See, Paul's not talking about keeping the dream alive or letting Jesus live on in our hearts. He's talking about real resurrection. Something happened that made cowardly people brave. Something happened that made skeptical people believe. Something happened that turned haters into worshipers. Something happened that gave guilty people hope. Something happened that made mothers and children bravely face death in lion's dens. Something happened. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. I know you've heard that before, but think about it. And here we are in 2022 and people all around the world with different education levels, different income brackets, different skin colors, different cultural customs, languages, worldviews, they're all getting up on a Sunday and worshiping King Jesus. They've come to celebrate it. The gospel is true. It's true. It really happened. Well, what does it do? Well, that's what we see at the end here in verses 9 through 11. What does Paul say? I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." In these few simple verses here, we see clearly what the gospel does. And many of you can testify to it this morning. It transforms lives. Exhibit A, Paul. The guy who has been trying to put an end to this Jesus movement as Jesus rose from the dead and people started to follow him and worship him. He's approving of people killing People trying to follow Jesus. People like Stephen, you can read about in the book of Acts, right? He, he, he's trying to throw families in jail and break up families. He's trying to put an end to all of this, but then all of a sudden, his life is radically changed. How do you go from that, from jailing people and killing people, to being someone who is giving away your own life for the same person that you were just trying to stomp out. We are told here the answer to it. What what brings about that kind of radical change? What does he say? It's the grace of God. He goes, Paul, how did you change? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Think about that. He was doing all he could in his life to clean himself up. He tried hard. And he did pretty good at it. But what changed him? The grace of God. It was experiencing the one appear to him on the road to Damascus saying, why are you persecuting me? Right, everything you're doing, you're doing against me, and yet that same one who spoke those words to him reached out with his nail-scarred hands and embraced Paul. So think about this. Number one, if someone like Paul can come to Christ and be forgiven... What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? Yes, even you. 
the person who's like, he's not talking to me, right? I'm talking to you. You think I'm too far gone, right? I've done too much. Right? You think about all the things that you've done, shameful things. You're like, I've had the affair. I've had the abortion. You don't know what I've done this weekend. I don't even know why I'm here. You've yelled at your kids for the thousandth time. Right? You're confronted with your pride, and you're like, how can I ever be humble? And you're so frustrated. And you're like, there's no way. There's no way. If God's grace is extended towards even those who try to put an end to the followers of Jesus, then what does that say for you? But secondly, do you see what this is saying? Your present, your life right now, will be transformed. Your present will be transformed. This is like a a promise because it's what the gospel does. It, meaning if you're somebody who doesn't move beyond the gospel, if you're, if you're somebody who's not like, yeah, I've heard that, I've believed that, check, moving on to varsity, right? If that's not you, but you're like, no, I need it, right? Can you tell it to me again, please? Can we sing it again, Josue? Right, we need it. If that's you, this is revealing to you that as you stand on that ground, you will be transformed, See, this is a fundamental question that a lot of people ask in our society. You hear it all the time. Can people really change? And there are a lot of people that you've written off in your life. You know, they'll never change. Maybe that person you've written off is you. People are trying to help you change all the time. You you scroll your Instagram feed and there's another ad being like, I'm going to help you lose weight, right? I'm going to help you. This is how you cook good for your, you know, well for yourself, You know, um, you want to do this thing, I'll help you do that thing. I will help you become a better you. People are trying to help us change all the time. It doesn't work very well, does it? And so we've grown tired of this. We're like, I will never change. Guys, sometimes we talk about salvation like it's just forgiveness, like it's just turning over a new leaf or making some new resolutions to be better versions of ourselves, and we've trivialized the power of the gospel. Jesus' salvation is not just a fresh start or or making some superficial changes. It is radical change. Even the word itself, radical, means at the root. Meaning like our root was dead and Jesus made it alive and that changes everything. See, see, some of you sit here and you think, I will never change. You do, you've, You've done something or many things. And now when you wake up every morning and brush your teeth and you look in the mirror, that's just how you see yourself. And you walk around in this world feeling like an imposter because you know you, but no one else seems to know the real you. And so you think God's grace is a nice idea, but it's just not enough for you. You might believe the gospel can change someone's life, but someone else's. See, guys, transformation begins to come in your life, not by focusing on what needs to be transformed. That's what you're doing every day. That's the problem. Transformation comes when you turn your gaze onto the one who transforms you. That's when the promise 
takes root. It's taking your eyes off of your failure and putting them on Jesus' victory. It's, it's finally being quiet and turning off all the noise, cranking down the volume even on those voices in your head. It's turning down the volume of the voice that says, I can never forgive myself. It's turning down the volume of the voice of the person who has said to you, I can never forgive you for that. And then it's turning up the volume of the gospel and hearing the voice of your creator say, I've already done it. You're free. You really are. You see, Paul didn't get his act together. He just met Jesus. That's all that happened. Years ago, I was driving from the Oregon coast at Cannon Beach. Do you guys know Cannon Beach? If you ever just Google Oregon pictures, at the top of the list, you'll see the ocean and a, a big rock called Haystack Rock. That's Cannon Beach, right? It's like in all the ads and stuff. We were at Cannon Beach, and we were driving back to Portland over the little coastal range there. And uh, in Oregon, I don't know why, at least on that road they do this, they have uh, all these signs that'll say, this forest was planted in 2016. And you look out, and the trees are, like, really small, you know? And then you look beyond those small trees, and you see all these older, mature, really tall, epic trees, And one day when we were driving over that coastal range, I had this thought, because my brain is kind of weird, okay, just letting you know that right now, okay? And I thought, like, I wonder if these trees ever look around at the taller trees and think, man, I'll never grow up, you know? Like, I'll never be like those big, tall, amazing trees, you know? I think if trees could talk or think, which they can't, okay, I'm not that crazy, right? I wonder what they would say. And the reason I thought that is because I was thinking about my own life. You know, we can look around at other people that have gone before us and we go, man, that's really a Christian. We can look at the life of Jesus and his perfection. We have this longing within our hearts for eternity and we know how far we have to go. And so we have that thought, I don't know if I'll ever grow up. But we know that those trees planted in the right environment with a healthy root, good soil, those trees will grow as they are protected. They will. It's like the great promise of how things work in our world. In the same exact way, as long as we don't uproot our lives and go, I need to move beyond this soil that I'm planted in already, as long as we don't do that, this is the Christian life. It's promised not because we get God as our servant who is going to make us the the me that we've always wanted to be, but because God has replaced our root and he's picked us up and he's transferred us into a new environment, into the kingdom of light, and he's planted us into the soil of the gospel and there he protects us, preserves us, and grows us until the day that we see Jesus face to face. And we are told that when we see him, we will be like him. We don't ever move beyond this. This isn't Christianity 101 and, hey, let's let's do our doctoral work now, you know? No, this is 201, 301, Oxford, whatever. 
This is what we've received. And if you're here and you're like, I've never received that. I've never received this grace. You can do that today. I would love to talk to you right after this service, if you're willing. Maybe you came with a friend who's a Christian. You could talk to them. Sure, might feel awkward at first, but I bet you that's the, the best awkward conversation you'd push past. I could promise you that. So we've received it. We stand in it. And we are being saved. This carries us to the very end. This is our foundation. Don't overlook it. Don't go, ah, it's not that important. No, together as a church, this is the vision, right? Every single day. I want you to think of it this way in closing. How amazing would it be every single day if we woke up as a church and we just said, let's seek to get the gospel into our hearts. And once we've got it into our hearts, let's get it out to the world. Every day. You might be thinking, I feel purposeless. I don't know what I should be doing. This is it. Every day, let's get the gospel into our hearts and then let's get it out to the world. Don't miss the first step because if you just try to get it out to the world, you might do it in the very wrong way. But once you get it into your heart, you'll be like Paul and just say, I'm just delivering it. What I've received. It's the most important thing. If we ever lose this as a church, everything else will fall apart. So let's, let's hold fast. Let's pray. Father God, we do come to you this morning and we are grateful for this day. You've made this day. This is your world. And we thank you for the privilege of living in it. We thank you, God, for your grace in our life that we do not wake up today without hope, without purpose. Lord, you've made the guilty free. You've lifted our shame at the cross. You've promised us new life. And God, we confess we need to be reminded of this. We don't just want to go through the motions. We don't want to think of what you've done as just a good story, but as something that's absolutely true. God, may, may the truth of your gospel just come alive before our eyes this morning in a way that feels like we've never even believed it before. God, would you do a work in us that only you can do? Would you make us into a church that believes your gospel and wants nothing more than just to get it out to the world? In Christ, we pray these things. Amen.